Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Happy Pentecost. And uh, on the liturgical church calendar, of course, this is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost uh, seems a little bit scary, right? That word brings and conjures up so many in, uh, images. Uh, Pentecost just means 50, 50 days after Passover. And, um, of course, what takes place in Pentecost Sunday is the coming of the Spirit. Some often call this the birthday of the church, okay? Happy birthday to the church of Jesus Christ. And what took place on that first Pentecost Sunday uh, was a powerful, powerful reality, wasn't it? Jesus had come and he had lived 30 years of his life sinlessly. He spent three and a half years of ministry. He would die on a cross. On the third day, the Father would vindicate him from the dead and he would now spend 40 days. The Bible says he appeared to 500 brethren and many more, many women. And after those 40 days, or during those 40 days, I should say he did nothing but preach the kingdom. The Bible said he spoke nothing but the kingdom of God. And on that 40th day, he took those disciples out onto the top of Mount of Olives, just on the east side there of Jerusalem. And he looked at them and they said, hey, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not time, right? Nor do I even know the date, but the Father has set And then he gave him a commission. Don't you dare go out and be my witnesses until something happens. He said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, Acts 1 and 8. You'll see it on the screen. And he said, I want you to wait. And you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And watch this. You will be my witnesses. He didn't say, I will give you power to witness. He's not talking about we get power to do an action. He's talking about our lives are being empowered so that we can embody what it means to be a witness. That's two totally different things. It's not us committed to language we post on Facebook to show that we have solidarity with everybody else and what's going on. It's actually our lives embody it. Our lives look like it. We have been given power to be who? Witnesses. Watch this. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That was year, again, about about 36, 37 AD. From there, of course, the gospel spreads like wildfire, right? Literally, across the entire Mediterranean world, believers come to know Jesus Christ. First of all, Jews being converted, then Gentiles coming to know the saving grace of Jesus. Fast forward 1,900 years, and often we think somehow that Pentecost was lost all throughout church history. It wasn't. Now, when that word Pentecost, what we're essentially saying is, Those individuals who believe in a second, what we call subsequent work of the Spirit. Okay, To be Pentecostal does not mean that we have something that makes us more saved than previous. That's not the point at all. This is actually not a salvation issue. This is an empowerment issue. This is a kingdom of God issue. And the reality, and we have to understand, is that when we talk about Pentecostals... There's often all kinds of jargon. Some call us charismatics. Uh, Some people call them spirit-filled people. Others have called them spirit-empowered. Others have called them renewalists. Today, I'm going to use the term spirit-empowered and renewalist renewalist because that's um, what has been basically kind of curated around the globe. There's a council several years ago that traveled the globe asking, and most people had all kinds of negative imagery that was associated to what it means to be Pentecostal. And so spirit-empowered is kind of the phrase. But what the researchers call us is renewalist. And you say, Craig, how did that all start? Well, in uh, Muscadine, Iowa, 1873, a man was born, white man, Charles Fox Parham, and uh, grew up in dead, cold religion and had an experience with Christ that changed his life. 
He then moves to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he starts Parham's Bible College. And in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when he starts this college, it's still, again, great, segregated, deep and steeped in racism. But he believed, or became the first one in that era, to start saying that glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, is an evidence of spirit baptism. To be baptized in the spirit means I have this capacity to speak in a divine language, a foretaste of a heavenly language. And even in the midst of that, segregation was so strong, he would teach all day long in the Bible school. And a man by the name of William J. Seymour, who was an African-American man, would sit outside the door. He would stay in the hall. And at, at times, the memoir said he would look under the door and he would just listen all day long to the teaching. And the Spirit of God birthed a, such a passion and a hunger in his heart for this experience. And he later was baptized in the Spirit and leaves as an evangelist and moves over to Los Angeles. He gets to Los Angeles on a street called Azusa Street. And he, for the next three years, will preach three messages a day, seven days a week for three straight years. You can imagine, right? And then in the memoirs of the Azusa Street Revival, it's often been said that the color lines were dissipated or eradicated with the blood of Jesus. This is often the language that's given to this revival. And I just want us to understand from that place, the Pentecostal movement as a flavor, so to speak, of Christianity spanned the globe. Okay? I don't think often we think about, because we're so inundated with bad news, at the work of Christ and the work of Christianity, the work of the Spirit of God in portraying the person of Christ and what's happening globally. Because we live in the global north and we live in the northern hemisphere, we think that that somehow constitutes to the rest of the reality, but it's not. So let me give you a couple stats just to set us up this morning to understand where we are as a globe. If you look at this stat here, this graphic shows us the breakdown currently of all those religious beliefs. You're talking about in 1970 to 2020, a 50-year period, you've got about 33% of, of people um, uh, in the globe that are claiming to believe, be believers, and you say, well, we've only gone to 33.3 in 50 years. Very true. But you're going to see how that's a reality based upon what's happening in Europe and North America. You can, of course, see that Muslims have taken a major, major jump. Agnostics have severely decreased, and agnosticism will continue. Agnostics are the, are the, the least. Even the nuns of the Gen Zers, very few, much more atheists than there are agnostics, okay? And you can see Buddhists on and on. But I want you to notice this stat. Notice the next slide. This is amazing. In 1970, less than half, that's 41% of all Christians worldwide, were from Africa, Asia, or Latin America. But 50 years later, we now approach two-thirds, okay? Now, based on your response, you don't realize how crazy that actual stat is globally in the history of Christianity, okay? Northern America and Europe we're home to 57% of the world's Christians in 1970. It's dropped in 50 years, 20%, and on down to 34%. So what we talk about in the northern hemisphere is the, the doom and gloom and the bleak reality of the world that you and I call home, that, that Christianity is growing at about a million people per week globally. About a million people are bowing their, their knee. And confession to Jesus Christ. So Christianity, if you see the next slide, is declining at a dramatic rate as a percentage in the north. And the birth rates in all the European countries are below reproduction rate or what we would call replacement level to replace the believers that are now older. Okay, So the world's population average is about 0.97% growth a year between 1970 and 2020. But in that same time frame, Christians are only poised in North America to grow 0.6%. So we're seeing what we would call a decline, right, in the West. But not a decline in the interest of spirituality. For Europe, the figure's only 0.33%. Pretty amazing when you study 
the Pew Research. Now look at this next graphic. When we talk about renewalists, we talk about people who claim to be baptized in the Spirit. In 1970, there were only 14.5 million Pentecostals, 4.3 million Charismatics, and 43.9 million independent Charismatics globally. Look what happened in 50 years. You went from 43 to 281 million. You went from 4.3 million to 281, 43.9 to 312 million, and 14.5 to 115 million people claiming to have some experience of what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now again, I'm using the language as renewalist. If you'll see the uh, next slide, renewalist is this confluence of, of, of what we see Pentecostals, Charismatics, and and neo or independent charismatics. But renewalists, those who believe in the baptism of the Spirit, notice this number, go back just a minute, numbered 62 million in 1970 and has grown to 709 million in five, uh, 50 years. Now, what that means is right now in the world, out of 7.7 billion people, one out of every nine people you meet is a Spirit-filled believer. I didn't say one out of every nine Christians you meet. One out of nine people on the globe claims to have been baptized with the Holy Spirit of God, okay? That's how fast. It's faster than any sect of Christianity since its inception. Nothing is moving as fast as Pentecostalism has in the last 100 years, globally. Astounding. Between 1970 and 2020, um, uh, 2010, renewalist movements grew nearly four times the growth rates of Christianity and the world's population, okay? In 1970, renewalists were 5% of all Christians, but by 2010, they'd grown to 25% of Christians globally. It's expected that renewalist movements will grow almost twice as fast as both global Christianity as a whole in the world's popula population and about 27% of all Christians claim to have some experience, what we call a baptism in the Spirit, an experience on Pentecost Sunday. Last thing I want to show you, and then we're going to read our text for today, is a graphic. This is the breakdown of Christians globally. So you look at the continent of Africa in 1970, 142 million professing believers. You now have 630 million believers. Okay, I know you all live in the culture I am, and it is totally inundated with bad news. But let me tell you, the work of the gospel and the work of Christ and belief in Christ globally is astounding. Astounding, the work of Jesus among the nations. Okay, And again, we get so myopic, right, in the Western world, so myopic. And we think what's happening here is happening everywhere. Look at uh, Asia, 95 million people in 1970. You're now 420 million believing prof professions in Christ. And look at the bottom, 1.2 billion people in 1970. How many people claim to know Christ? 2.6 billion people. You realize that kind of multiplication in 100 or 50 years out of the previous 1950 years of growth. Astounding, astounding. Now, with that backdrop, I've got two texts for today. One is a very sacred text. One is a decidedly non-sacred text. You decide which one's which. I'm going to start with Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 26. It's a question that I'm going to use in typical Pentecostal style and take out of context. Good. That was supposed to be a joke. That was supposed to be a joke. Verse 26. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have, and watch this, and remained alive. Who's heard God speak and remained alive? And then another text from Gnarls Barkley in the song Crazy. Who do you, who do you, who do you, who do you think you are? Ha, ha, ha. Bless your soul. You really think you're in control. 
Well, I think you're crazy. Pentecostals, spirit-filled, renewalists, charismatics, you give what you want to. You use the jargon you desire. We, from the very beginning, have claimed to be a movement. We've identified ourselves with a movement. We've taken pride, can I say, dare I say, in being a movement of people because we've recognized just how difficult it is to live with a living God. You think people are difficult to live with? Try living with God. Try living with God, the God of Scripture, right? He is hard to live with. He is a living God, and he is always on the move. You know, I was thinking this week, you remember what he says to David when David says, I want to build you a temple. David said, I want to build you a temple where your presence will dwell. And God says, I don't want a temple. He said, the tabernacle is my home. Why? Because I'm nomadic. I like to move. I don't want to stay stationary. I'm not meant to be in one locale, okay? I, 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 I want to be moving. I'm always on the move. God is restless. In fact, one of my favorite theologians, Rowan Williams, he actually said that the way you can find or identify the works of God in the world or history is you have to look to the places where the church is restless. You got to look to the places in history where the church is unsettled because there God is at work. In other words, what's happening when the church feels a little bit off balance, that's where God is at work. And very from the very beginning, the day of Pentecost in 36 AD all the way up to 1900s with the Azusa Street Revival to Parham's Bible School, we as spirit-filled people right from the beginning, we have said that we are a fact, a movement. In fact, I would say we've taken pride in being a movement. But the sobering fact is this, that the moment you can take pride in being a movement, it is no longer alive. The moment one becomes prideful of that which they belong to, they're no longer living. It's now been now. The moment you can take pride in a movement, it's no longer alive. It is something you have memorialized. You have built monuments to it. You're not living it. You're remembering it. And if I can be bold enough, who wouldn't be bold enough in our present day and age, right? If I can be bold enough this morning, my tribe of Pentecostals, I'm not speaking to all Pentecostals, certainly not globally. I mean, how, how presumptuous would that be? But, but my tribe of Pentecostals, people who I came to know Christ with, that tribe of Pentecostals, that, that, that tribe is not living the way we used to live. We remember it and we celebrate it and we take pride in it, but we don't experience it and we're not undergoing it. And we have forgotten, can I just propose to us in the Western world, we have forgotten how hard it is to live with a living God. And we love telling stories about how God was alive and how God did work. In fact, we imitate being alive by rejoicing in our remembrances or rejoicing in our memories. But what I believe is to be true is that we are triggered more by our nostalgia than we are triggered by hope. We are triggered more by what we thought God used to do or know God used to do than we are the hope of what he's going to do. And listen, that is the dead giveaway that a movement is a monument. The movement is something we remember, okay? But not something that we are currently undergoing or experiencing. And, and I just think, I just want to propose, I think far too often we are far too confident that we still are a movement. I believe that we, we lack often the understandings that God is living. And I think that we are too sure that if God, and we knew it was God doing what God was doing, I think we think that we would go along with it. But that's naive, I think it's somehow we've become prideful. And so now we look at our lives like we Pentecostals, unlike the frozen chosen, right? 
unlike the people who dead cold religion, like we have a relationship with the living God and we will follow God. And yet it's so striking to me that so much of what the spirit seems to be doing in our churches, spirit, seems to look just like the conservative political agenda of our nation. So now we're claiming to be a movement of the spirit being carried by other movements. That's a dead giveaway. We're not a movement. We're memorializing a movement. Or if you're maybe the smaller few, maybe it's not a conservative political agenda, maybe it's a progressive political agenda. But the mark of the living God is that he is alive. He is alive. The mark of the true God is that he is alive. And listen, the mark of a living God is that he surprises us. Right? This is how you can tell the difference between an idol and the true God. An idol will never surprise you. An idol's reliable. An idol is useful. Our God is not predictable. He's faithful, but he's always faithful in ways that we can't predict. He never fulfills his promises in the way we want them fulfilled. He always fulfills them, but he never does it the way we desire. He's faithful, but he's not predictable. He is not in that sense useful. Inevitably, because he surprises us, he will then also conversely, the, tr- the, the, the truth is, he will inevitably disappoint us. Listen, if you are not disappointed by God or surprised by God, it's because they're an idol, is an idol has taken his place. And this is how I know. This is how I know if people have really seen God. If you're bored with God, you haven't seen God. But when you actually get mad, upset, disappointed, um, overwhelmed, disappointed, uh, hopeful, or surprised, then you know, oh, this is not a statue. He does what he wants. God does what God does. He has his own will. We don't like it oftentimes. We certainly are not in tune with it from the outset. But idols never disappoint, do they? That's what they're good for. Idols are useful. As Walter Brueggemann said, God's first word to Israel is, I am not useful. God's first word in the commandments is, I am not useful. In other words, I'm not like these other idols. I'm not like those other gods that you create to build for yourselves because you need whatever your desired outcome is. And you need a war god because you need to win the war. So what you do is you erect a war god and you bring the war god into war because you want to win the war. And God says, I'm not like that. He says, if I don't send you into a war, I'm not going with you. He says, hey, do you want me to go with you or not want me to go with you? Well, just come ask me when the time comes. This is our God throughout the Old Testament. He is so surprising. I may go with you in the battle, I might not. Just come and ask me. God is a living God that surprises us and inevitably disappoints us. God cannot be managed. Idols can be handled. God cannot be handled. No one is more difficult to live with than God. Because God is not the projection of our wishes. And God is not the magnification of our desires. God is God. That's who he is. He's God. And God is God, and we are in relationship to this God, but he still remains God, and he still remains living. He still has his own purposes. As one of the prophets said, Isaiah, what did he say? He said, his ways are not like our ways, which is to say, you never know what God will do. This is the trouble with God, by the way. He acts different in different situations. What do we do with this kind of God? We don't know what to do as humans with a God who acts one way one moment and another way another moment. Who says one thing one moment, who says another thing another moment. What do we, he is God and we are not and we can never quite predict what he will do. Folks, scripture is filled with this. In fact, 
I would be so bold to say it's not an exaggeration to say that overwhelmingly the history of the world or the history of the church is the record of Israel and the church being disappointed by or surprised by what God is in fact turned out to be doing. And we can never figure him out. Every page of scripture is a story, is a reflection, is a saying about how God cannot be managed how God cannot be handled, about how to be his people is to be constantly on the move, to constantly be up in the air, to be constantly unsettled, to be nomadic because we're trying to catch up where God with where God is and where God's presence is always moving. He's never stationary. So we, what makes us people of the spirit is that we've actually tried to stomach his movement. We get this sense of vertigo because we're trying to keep up with a God that we can't keep up with. And that's what makes us people of the spirit. Because he has decisions who are his own, and he has a will who is his own. If you don't think God is surprising, let me give you some examples. Go ask the prophets if God is surprising. Go ask Isaiah. Read that text and ask God if he thinks God is surprising. Or, or ask, uh, ask Jeremiah. Ask Jeremiah, if you dare, I don't dare, if God always comes through the way you want him to come through. Go ask Jeremiah. Or if you dare, go ask Ezekiel if God is surprising. That's what makes the prophets, prophets, they're maddeningly confused. God's not doing what they thought God was going to do. He won't be handled. He won't be managed. He's a living God. We don't like living gods, I know. We want stable gods because we want stable lives. Right? We want what, that which makes us fulfill the outcomes we desire. And the prophets are mad because God is living and he won't be held down. And they're mad because they live in a world that wants to be stable, but they're in a relationship with a God who's a whirlwind, who is, by his own definition, a consuming fire. A God is moving so quickly they can't keep up. They have constant motion sickness. They're constantly trying to find God. And if we are going to be a prophetic movement, guess what also must mark us? What must mark us is that same madness, that same motion sickness, that same apology to everybody else. He's God and we're not. I don't know what's really gonna happen tomorrow, but we're gonna follow this God. I'm sorry, but we can't handle him. We can't, we can't hold him back. We can't manage him. But, but so much of what we call ministry in the 21st century is like public relations for God. We get up on the stage and we manage God's image for people. Because we got to protect him. If they really know who he is, he doesn't speak for himself anymore, right? Right? So what we call ministry is public relations. We're his PR agents. So we stand between God and his people and we explain away his actions to help our minds. Or we feel in some sense that God's no longer doing what he does And that, my friends, is how you know a movement is no longer a movement. It's a monument. If you don't think God is surprising, just ask the Old Testament saints. Can I today tell you some things about our God, revealed about God himself, that often doesn't get talked about? Number one, to live with a living God, you have to realize and notice how much he accommodates to the weakest among us. Notice how much God accommodates to weak people, to the weakest of society. One of the stories that illustrates this most maddeningly is the story of Naaman. Remember the story of Naaman, the Aramean king who comes to the prophet to get healed of leprosy? And what does the prophet tell him to do? Go wash, wash seven times in the river. And when he's finished washing, he comes back to the prophet healed and he says to Elisha, he says, all right, I got it. Yahweh's the real God, I got it. He healed me, I believe, I confess. Yahweh's the only true God, but I got a problem, Elisha. 
When I go back home, I serve a king, I serve a master who makes me daily pick him up and carry him into the temple of Ramon where he worships an idol. Now, I know Yahweh saved me. I know Yahweh healed me. I know Yahweh is the true God. But I got a problem because I serve in a kingdom where I have to live a life in which my master worships an idol. Now, you would think if there's anything God's clear about in Scripture, it's idol worship, right? You know you know what Elisha's about to say to him, right? Because we, know, we think we know what God's like, right? So, so here's what we do with our own projections. We already start imagining, what is Elisha going to say to him? He's going to say to him, I'm sorry, bud. Stand on the mountain of your convictions. If you need to die for it, die for it. You're not going to go back and lift up a master and take him into the temple for idol worship, and yet what? What happens? What happens in that moment? You would be sure the next step is stand on your convictions. Instead, what does the prophet say? Oh, you got to go back to a master who wants to pick you to pick him up and take him into the temple to worship idols? Oh, go in peace. That is maddening for us strong people. Right? That's why we're strong, because we don't accommodate weak people. We don't like weakness. That's what makes us strong. And here we are having a God who's accommodating to the weak. We don't accommodate to the weak. We often push aside the weak. And here is God deciding to make room for idol worship in the life of Naaman. Why would God do that? What is he thinking? Does he not know the God I inherited from my parents when I was a kid? He's not measuring up to that caricature. This is growth, right? And that's how you know you have a relationship with the living God because you are constantly shaking your head saying, what is God doing here? This doesn't sound like what he should be about. This is not what I think he should be doing. Or think about the ways that, that Jesus, by the way, Jesus said Moses' laws were an accommodation to the hardness of their hearts. You remember this? Remember the text? What did Jesus say about it? They come to him, the teachers of the law, they're trying to trick him into a question, right? And what does he do? He, Jesus says, listen, it wasn't like that in the beginning. Don't think this is like that. God gave you laws, you call it scripture, to accommodate your hard-heartedness. We don't like that. God made laws to accommodate people's weakness. But it wasn't so from the beginning. That's what Jesus says to him. Why would God do that? What in the world is he thinking? Like, the laws you call scripture... God accommodated to you because your hearts were hard. He had to accommodate to you. And we don't know what to do with a God like that. What do you do with a God who acts differently in different circumstances? It is maddening when Paul does it, right? Remember when Paul does it, he circumcises one disciple and he won't do the next? And we don't like that. How are you supposed to speak for a God like that? Oh, oh, he's, he's living. He's not, a, he's not an idol. We're not sure really what to make of a God like that. Just imagine how God is. God God is his own law. God is his own word. God is his own rule. God does what God does. And either we are caught up in the pursuit of it or we try to explain it away. That's the reality. He accommodates the weakness. Think about this Pentecost Sunday. Now, in Pentecost Sunday, in the initial Pentecost Sunday, what we call the birthday of the church, Peter got up and he spoke, right? After they were baptized in the spirit and the cloven tongues of fire gave each one the utterance, the God-fearing Jews from all nations were gathered around. Each heard God, each heard their own language, God being praised. And so they come and they say, nine o'clock in the morning, this, these dudes are drunk. And Peter gets up and he says, no, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And that's what it means to be people of the spirit, is that we are able to steward 
the lack of comprehension that other people, misunderstandings about who we are as individuals. And so he, he says this, the context I'm in is that. And that's what it means to be spirit-filled, is that I'm able to look at the context in which we live and we are able to interpret that in light of that. This is that. And what does he do? He starts quoting Joel 2.28. But Joel 2.28 doesn't just start there. There's a story in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, an Israel saga. It's an amazing story where one day the people of God are totally complaining against Moses. Moses' shoulders were really broad, but man, he was tired. And God says to him, go to the tent of meeting and I'm going to put my spirit on you and 70 elders and you're going to prophesy and they'll prophesy with you. And the Bible says in verse 24 of Numbers 11, the spirit came upon the 70 elders and when the spirit rested when they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Problem solved. He needed help. God put his spirit, watch this, they were gathered at the right location, at the right tent of meeting, the proper place to meet God. Everything was right and in order. God didn't do it on women. God did it on men. Everything was good, but there was a problem. Yo, I solve it. There's two men and the tents. How do you get, how do you get stats about global Christianity and vanilla ice and Pentecost Sunday in the same sermon? Okay, welcome to DP. So there's two, man, two men in the, in the camp who the Spirit of God comes on and they start prophesying too. And all of the, the children of Israel don't like it. They come to Moses and say, hey, shut them down. Shut them down. And you know what he says? Would that all of the Lord's people be prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. In other words, he said, I'm going to let the spirit have his way. The spirit's not going to discriminate who the spirit wants to put the spirit on or himself on. So, so listen, I want all of God's people. Well, this kind of longing continued through Israel's history till the finally you get to this book called Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, notice what the Bible says. He says, then after that, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, right? And he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now pause. The novelty in Joel's dream is not that the spirit would be poured out. Every prophet talked about God pouring out his spirit. You have Isaiah talking about God pouring out his spirit. Jeremiah talking about God pouring out his spirit. Ezekiel talking about God pouring out his spirit. The novelty is that in Joel's vision, the spirit is poured out on all flesh. Even female slaves and upon male elders. In other words, Jesus's and Joel's unexpected image of outpouring takes us beyond the comfortable confines of what we normally like and it busts up every preconceived notion we have. The prophetic promise of the outpouring of the Spirit breaks every conceivable boundary and every self-imposed border we have. Why? Largely, the New Testament from that point on, on the day of Pentecost, is God's people trying to catch up with what God's doing when they don't expect God to do it. Like the inclusion of the Gentiles, right? Somehow God chose to include them without consulting the disciples first. Right? He didn't consult them. And so they're spending the rest of the book of Acts trying to determine. And what, is, what does Peter do? He has a vision. The vision says of the food, don't call unclean what I've made clean. And you know what the Bible says in Acts chapter 10? This is, a, this is such a powerful statement. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation. And I hate so badly that the NIV, NRSV, even the New King James, even the ESV uses without hesitation. The word there in Greek is discriminatos, or what we call diakrimenos. It literally means to go without discriminating. So Peter, I've told you, the Gentiles actually are part of my kingdom. So I want you to go down, and Peter goes down without discrimination. 
See, see, racism and Christianity cannot coexist under any way, right? And part of what we're experiencing right now is a, is a reality of our grandparents' generation. How many grandparents have I talked to who were pastors who were racist? Pastors. Pastors. People preaching the love of Jesus who were fully prejudiced, who still have a biblical hermeneutic that black people are less than white. Okay, Still. And that we've never given space for actual confession of that, clear confession of that. We just say we can't see color lines. Well, that's just a cheap, haphazard way to get out of dealing with what we need to deal with. Oh, yeah, you do see color. God sees color and God celebrates color. So don't say you don't see it because then you're not treating them as the imago dei, the the person that they're made in God's image. So the reality is in, in what we see in our day and age is that we understand what makes Christians, Christian makes Pentecostals Pentecostal. In that what? We can't discriminate. That's the whole prophetic picture of Acts 2, is that the Spirit of God comes upon all flesh. Daughters begin to prophesy. Men begin to have vision. Old men begin to dream dreams. And Peter says, he went without hesitation. So does God accommodate to the weakest among us? Yeah. But secondly, God also not only accommodates to the weakest among us, number two, he makes us keep covenants that he did not intend for us. He makes us keep covenants that he did not intend for us. This is the story of Joshua and the Gibeonites. You want to talk about a crazy story. Remember when Joshua and the children of Israel are going into the promised land to conquer and the next city they're going to come up to are the Gibeonites. You know what the Gibeonites do? They say, well, we, we can't beat them with our army, so we're going to devise a plan. And they send and come close to Joshua. You know what they do? They say, hey, we're from a far, far away land. And we just want you to know that when you come, if, you, if and when you ever get to us, we want to be at peace with you. Would you sign a peace treaty with us? Joshua said, well, sounds like a plan. Signs the peace treaty, doesn't he? And as soon as he writes on the line, you know what? It gets discovered and revealed. They're not from a faraway land. They're actually the very next battle. So what does Joshua do? He knows what God's like, right? We know what God's like, right? We know what God's response is going to be. So he's thinking, well, I'm just going to get the covenant, rip it up right here. I'm going to rip it right in front. Joshua thinking he knows what God is like. I'm going to tear up the contract. Clearly, they deceived us. And what does God say? No, you don't tear up that contract. In other words, you actually made this covenant with them and you will live that covenant. So much so, y'all, that when Saul's kingdom is taken from him, you know what happens when Saul's kingdom is taken from him? One of the reasons why God took the kingdom from Saul 150 years later is because he spilled the blood of the Gibeonites. What kind of God makes us keep a covenant we were tricked into? Certainly not a statue. He's a living God. Now, that's all been peaches and cream. Now I want to get to the rough edges of what I want to say today. Not only is a God a God who accommodates to the weakest, not only is a God, God who makes us keep covenants that we were tricked into, but thirdly, God is a God who breaks his own laws. He breaks his own laws. We see this again and again in Scripture, right? The story of David. Remember David ate the bread of the presence in the temple? that Jesus appeals to later in the New Testament, or think of the story of Hosea. You remember the story of Hosea? Hosea, by the command of God, go marry a prostitute. Have children with her, three of them to be exact, and when she leaves you adulterously to go back with another man, buy her back 
And that's an explicit violation of what God just told him a few years before. Deuteronomy 24 and verse 4 says, When she goes away, she is not to be accepted back. So God says, I thought better of it. I told you a couple years ago, you can't do it. But I'm going to tell you to do it now. We, 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 we don't know what to do with that kind of God. So what does Hosea do? He buys her back. He remarries her again. Like, what kind of God is this? Like, who can really live with a living God? How are we going to speak for a God who acts like that? Like, who himself makes the laws and breaks those laws? You do realize this is what gets Jesus killed, by the way, don't you? You realize this, right? When the living God comes among us and he actually lives, and he lives how he wants to live with some kind of spiritedness, we kill him because we can't keep up with a God moving that fast. If you move from temple, overturning tables, to, to healing lepers, to moving over here and, and touching a paralytic, and then over here teaching on the... We don't know what to do with you. We will hang you on a cross. We're, we're, we've got too much vertigo. There's too much motion sickness. We can't keep up with a God who is ahead of us that many steps. And at every move and every step, folk, I want to tell you, we get a kind of vertigo trying to live with this God, and we try to, try to stomach this motion sickness. Listen, though, what, part of what makes us people of the Spirit is that we have tried to stomach it. You, you know that's what Azusa Street is, right? Azusa Street is about the people of God trying to stomach the motion of a God we can't keep up with, we can't manage, we can't handle, but we're trying, even daring crazily to do it anyway. And, and we go back to Gnarls Barkley quote that we just said a minute ago, we know we are not in control and we relish it. That's who we are. Y'all, that's what makes us Pentecostals. Listen, if you don't hear anything I say today... If, if Pentecostal means anything, however you want to term that, if Pentecostal means anything, it means to be in relationship with a God we know we can't manage and we're not trying to manage because he is Lord and we are not. And his ways are not our ways. And we delight in knowing that his ways are not our ways. <laughs> so he breaks his own laws. But then fourthly, not only does he accommodate to the weakest among us and make us keep covenants that he didn't intend for us, and not only does he break his own laws, but fourthly, he fulfills his promises in strange ways. In unthinkable ways. I'm ta we're talking about the living God. Unthinkable, unthinkable ways. I could give countless examples. Let me just give you a few. One is John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He is Elijah, right? What is, do you remember what Jesus is saying this? How did the Old Testament end, Malachi 4 and 6? In the last days, what? The great dreadful day of the Lord, I will send my, what? Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, children back to the fathers. How does the New Testament open? John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And so they're thinking, you know what? It was long prophesied before the great day of the Lord, Elijah will come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So the disciples come to Jesus like you and I would, and they say, hey, when would this be, Jesus? When would God do this? And, and he said, he already did. Think about how disappointing an Elijah John the Baptist is. Bro did not one miracle. Bro didn't get up in a chariot of fire. He dropped his mantle and no one picked it up. And his, head, he, his ministry by and large was a failure ending up with his head on a platter in Herod's court. 
And you're telling me that's, that's Elijah, Jesus? God fulfills his promises in strange ways. He doesn't get translated up into heaven like Elijah. His mantle gets thrown to the ground. He doesn't get picked up like Elisha. He does no miracles, yet that's the way God fulfills his promise that Elijah would come. And listen to me, church. If you don't hear me say anything today, what is true about Elijah and what is true about Elisha and what is true about John the Baptist is true about every person in here who has ever received the promise of God, not only received the promise of God to me personally and to us a people. When his promise comes, we won't see it. We won't recognize it. When the promise of God comes, we won't see it for what it is. Because when it comes, we're going to be looking for another Elijah who goes up in fire and who's performing miracles and who's passing on his ministry to Elisha. But when he comes, he doesn't come that way. He comes as John the Baptist doing no miracles, ending as a martyr with his head on a platter, passing on no mantle to no Elijah. God fulfills his promises in strange ways. Strangest way, by the way, in all of Scripture is Jew and Gentile being grafted into one tree. Jew and Gentile. You do realize that what we call the church emerged out of the chaos when God included Gentiles against everyone's expectation? Right? That's what we call the church. What makes us Pentecostals, what makes Christians Christian? God, you seem to be doing something we didn't think you would do. Now what are we going to do about it? Now, unless you, unless you think I'm making up the scripture, I want, to, I want you to see this. Romans chapter 11, verse 24. This is scandalous. This is scandalous. This is the apostle Paul and his diatribe to the Gentiles. And he's saying to the Gentiles, let me tell you about your salvation. He says, for if you've been cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted. Watch this. Contrary to nature. Contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Do you have any idea how scandalous that is? He said your salvation as a Gentile. Any Gentiles in here? I thought so. Your salvation is contrary to nature. Do you realize what God has done in salvation? What God has done in grafting the Gentiles into the tree is not possible in nature. In other words, the God who makes nature does something that nature itself cannot do. You want to get even more scandalous? This contrary to nature phrase is the very phrase Paul uses in Romans 1 when he talks about the people who are debased and turned over to their own desires. He says sin is doing what's contrary to your nature. So we do what is contrary to our nature. God calls it sin. And now God says your salvation is what is done against nature. God fulfills his promises in strange ways. Unthinkable ways. But what are we to do with that? What will we do with a God who always keeps his promises but never keeps them the way we expect? Are you guys on the same page as me? I need to preach or something, man. I, I thought the movement was alive. I need something in this room. Like, Do y'all serve a God who fulfills every promise he's given you the way you expect it? And then fifthly, not only does he accommodate to the weakest, not only does he make us keep covenants that he intended for us to make, not only does he break his own laws, not only is he a God who fulfills his promises in unthinkable ways, 
But most maddening of all, he is a God who revokes his own judgments. He reserves the right to condemn and uncondemn at the same moment. Let's go back to our passage in Hosea that I just mentioned earlier. Hosea was told to marry a prostitute, have three kids with her, right? And then, listen, God tells Hosea, name every one of the kids a specific name that tells Israel, I'm done with her. I'm breaking covenant with her. The last straw has broke the last camel's back. I'm done with Israel. That's verses 1 through 9. I looked at verse 10. Yet the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can neither be measured nor numbered. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, you are children of the living God. Wait a minute, God. No. Time out. I thought you were through with Israel. You just opened this whole book with nine verses saying you were done. You told a man who you love to go marry a prostitute, have kids that name those kids that you're done with Israel. And now you're returning to the very promise in which you called Israel. What did he do to Abraham? Go outside, look at the ground. You see the sand? As numerous as the sand on the seashore, so shall your descendants be. And he says, in the very place that I said you're no longer my people, I'm declaring you are my people. In the very place that I said I'm done with you, I'm going to make you my children. Y'all, I don't know if you know this or not, but God revokes his own judgments. In the same breath that he condemns, he makes alive. In the same breath that he says no, he says yes. In the same breath in which he says depart from me, he says come near to me. In the same breath he says you are not my people, he says you are my children. In the same breath that he says this is the end, he says this is the beginning. I'm preaching a whole lot better than you guys are letting on right now. He reserves the right to speak judgment and pull it back in in the same breath. What do we do with a God like that? Isaiah 56, verse 3 through 5, perhaps the most clear picture. He says, God, do not let the foreigner say to the Lord, join to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And don't let the eunuch, eunuch, normally maimed, normally an injury of genitals that disables intercourse. That's that's the eunuch he's talking about. Don't just allow that eunuch to say, I'm just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, watch this, to the eunuchs who keep my covenants and my Sabbath, the things that please me and hold fast my covenants, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Y'all, this is the third book of Isaiah. Isaiah has three books. This is the third book. This is after all that Isaiah has seen. And what's astonishing to me about this is that Deuteronomy 23 explicitly forbids eunuchs coming into the house of the Lord. God said eunuchs who are maimed in any way cannot come in my presence. Wait a minute, God. You said eunuchs could not come into your house. And God said, yep, well, I've thought better of it. And what I think now is I'm going to treat you eunuchs as if you were more to me than sons and daughters. Now, you eunuchs, you're on the inside. I know you're on the outside, but I've thought better of it. You're going to be on the inside. And if there's any God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ, it is a God who is constantly turning people on the outside into the inside. It's a God who's constantly going to the edges, to the weakest, to the most disenfranchised and bringing those people into the inside. He's constantly turning those who he 
has excluded into those he has included. And what marks us as the people of God is that we rejoice when he includes those who are on the outside. What marks us as true people of the spirit is that we say yes when God says yes to a person. That when God's hand stays open to whoever, regardless of our history, our personal agenda, our political agenda, our conservative desires, whatever it is, we say yes when God says yes. And that is, notice if you read the last uh, Matthew 26, the last judgment, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. The only difference between the sheep and the goats is that the sheep are glad that the goats get included. And what marks us as the people of God is that we are excited when those who are excluded get included. Because we are the eunuchs. We are the eunuchs who are dry trees, folks. Don't let the eunuchs say to me, who is joined, I am a dry tree. I will treat you better than sons and daughters. That's what God says of you and I. The dead people we are. Don't consider yourself dry trees. You're more than sons and daughters. I'm almost finished. I'm not finished yet, but I'm almost. There are two prophets who understood this better than I think all others in Scripture. One's Jonah, one's Abraham. Now, let me talk about Jonah a minute. Jonah, I think, is perhaps one of the godliest prophets in the Old Testament. And that's what leads him to disobey God. Do you hear what I said? If God's surprising, let me be surprising. Jonah is one of the godliest, and that's what causes him to disobey. Let me, let me explain. He knows what God's going to do, doesn't he? God comes to him and says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to speak destruction on it, because I'm going to overthrow the city in 40 days. And Jonah says, no, thank you. And he flees to Tarshish. Well, God says, wait a minute, I'm not through with you. And there, I won't go into it, but there's a little thing that involves a fish and water. And he gets regurgitated on some land and he goes to Nineveh and he finds himself overlooking the city. And you know what he says to God? I told you so. I told you, God. I knew you would do this. Whenever you told me to come and speak destruction to this people, I knew what you really meant because I know you. I know the word beyond the words. And I know that no matter what you say, no matter what words come out of your mouth, God, I know what's in your heart. I know the deeper word that's in the depth of who you are. And I know that no matter what you say about destroying those people, if they even show just a hint of sorrow, just a hint of repentance, you would forgive them and call them your people. And I want no part of that. See, Jonah's willing to admit what we won't admit sometimes. See, he knows the heart behind the heart. He knows the word behind the words. And we as the people of the Spirit in our day and age you have to be people who, like Jonah, we don't disobey, but we have discernment like him to know that God's heart is never-ending. His compassions never fail. His mercy is everlasting. And he is just looking for the slightest little sliver of any kind of repentance or sorrow, and you will be brought in the right relationship with him. This is why I have been so disturbed this week y'all I don't know how I mean like think about what happened just in the last seven days in our nation like George Floyd like like his face Monday night on the ground while a man a white man with his knee in the back of his neck and he's crying out for his mama y'all his mama he's asking his mama to deliver him and there are people watching as bystanders and from there what are we supposed to say this is God's son George Floyd he is a son of almighty God 
What, am I supposed to just skim over the injustice as it rolls through the streets? Or are we as the people of God going to stand and say we serve a God who died on a cross and was resurrected so that no one should perish? No one. Are we still divided on that in America? That the value of a person is in skin? Are you serious? And Jonah knows. No matter what you say, God, you can tell me you're going to destroy, but I know you won't. And I won't know part of that. The other prophet's a man named Abraham. You you tell me God's not hard to live with. It took him 25 years to get his promised son. He hits the preteen years and he says, go slaughter him. God's easy. He's easy to live with. Never disappoints me, never surprises me. It's almost like he agrees with every opinion I have. It's amazing. And I'm going to keep posting it on social media until somebody else agrees with me and God. But this is the reality, right? And Abraham, y'all, he takes his son to slaughter his son. Like God is hard to live with. Has anyone in the history of the world been asked anything more difficult than Abraham was asked? And Abraham does it, y'all, but listen to me. Not because he has no conscience and not because he's following God mindlessly. It's because he knows the heart of God. Listen to this scripture. God, this wrecks me. Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible says that Abraham reasoned that God is a God who can raise the dead. And what's astonishing to me, folks, is that Abraham had not seen God raise the dead. Abraham had never seen God raise the dead. Abraham had no promise that God can raise the dead. But Abraham looked through the perils of time into the heart of a compassionate God and he saw Christ in his heart before Christ was ever manifested in our world. And he said, you know what? I'm gonna trust God. It's not a blind trust. It's a trust and I'm reason. If God told me to slaughter my son, then I know he must have a purpose that I can't see. And without hesitation, he gets up the next morning. Doesn't tell Sarah, by the way. And starts walking to a mountain to kill his son. This is what it means to be Pentecostal. To look past the words and past all of our experiences to see the heart of a God whose mercy knows no ends, whose compassions are everlasting, and recognize Jesus is the heart of God. He is the heart of God. And at the heart of the life of the Spirit is Jesus. And Abraham sees past his own experiences and he says, God, if you're telling me to kill my son, you have a purpose greater. And one of the things I love about these stories, Abraham and and Jonah, is that Jonah is right about God. He wants to forgive the people, but he disobeys. And Abraham is wrong about God. He doesn't raise his son. He, He doesn't let him kill his son. And yet he obeys. Why do I love that? Because sometimes it's not about getting it right. It's about whether or not we're willing to stomach what we realize about our God. (laughs) It's not about right and wrong. It's about are you willing to stomach 
the never-ending mercy displayed in the compassionate Savior, Jesus. Are you willing to stomach that? I was watching the rioters and looters throwing bricks through the CNN building, and I'm just literally, I don't know how to explain it other than I'm overwhelmed, and I have not a twinge of anger in my heart. It's like I see these folks as people of whom God wants to include so desperately. Oh, Greg, well, maybe some are believers, true. But I guarantee you there are some that were not believers. That when God opens his hand, we say yes, no matter how difficult that is. No matter how challenging it is. I told you earlier, come on, Casey, that we are under the naivety sometimes that if we knew God was doing it, we would just be okay with it. But isn't that naive? Church, the truth of the matter is there will be moments in our life where God will do something we don't want to applaud and what will mark us as people of the Spirit, people of sanctification, is that we say yes when God says yes, no matter how much that hurts. No matter what our politics say, no matter what our personal history say, no matter what we believe, we have to say yes, no matter what our personal history is. When God's hand is open to the stranger, our hand is open to the stranger. When God's hand is open to the foreigner, our hand is open to the foreigner. Jesus came to die for you and for me so that we would never eternally die. And what makes Abraham, Abraham, is that he's willing to trust God even in the midst of all that he knows because he knows God is a living God who makes alive. And so how do we live with a living God? We have to know him. That's a disappointing realization, isn't it? And there's no technique, no matter what you read, there's no method. You either know God's character or you don't. You either know his heart or you don't know his heart. You're either in rhythm with the spirit or out of rhythm with the spirit. And this is what our moms and dads in the faith understood. This is what those who've gone before us understood. This is why Pentecostal movement was a movement. It was not just a movement of joy in the spirit, folks. It was a movement of sorrow in the spirit. It was a movement of repentance in the spirit. Because when you're a spirit-filled person, you have the recognition. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God will only be at hand as long as you are repenting. But the moment you stop repenting, the kingdom is far from you. The moment you think you got it figured out, you are lost. The moment you know what God is doing, you are lost. The moment you are sure what God would say to your neighbor, you are lost. The moment you are definitely on target, you are off target. The only way to live near this living God is to constantly be in repentance. To constantly allow the kingdom to draw near and say I don't know God. I don't. The only way to really live with God is to let yourself go to the rhythm of the spirit and the rhythm of the spirit is the exact opposite of the rhythm of what you want to live God it feels so unnatural it's the most uncomfortable unnatural rhythm and it's the only way to live with a living God you will have to live and I will have to live in constant repentance if we want the kingdom of God near us and that's why it's at the spirit that the altar moves yeah he moves at this this altar I'm talking about the altar in your life where every day you're consistently saying no to yourself and yes to God because I got really bad news remember the text we started with who has heard the living God and lived nobody church if you hear this God speak the God of the Bible you will die 
if you want to live with this God, you will die. There is no way into his will that isn't the way of cross and resurrection. And the moment you think you've got it down, you're lost again. There is no way to be people of the Spirit without being people of Golgotha. There is no way to have an outpouring of the Spirit without visiting the tomb of Friday and Saturday. We have to be people who recognize and are honest with ourselves and honest with the living God that living with this God will get you killed. And then we rejoice in it because we realize this is a God who raises the dead. Who makes alive. Oh man, does American Christians need to hear? You can't follow God's will by living. You have to die. There's no other entrance. There, there, there is no other entrance. So he won't save us from death, but he'll save us out of it. Friend, he won't keep you from dying. This is a God who raises the dead. And the good news, if there is any good news in what I have to say today, I hope there is. The good news is that when you live with a living God, death never gets the last word. (laughs) You know, I told the Lord yesterday, I got down on my knees and I just said, God, as sucky as it is to follow you sometimes, and as, as hard as it is to follow you no matter how painful it is I'll say yes because death never gets the last word when you live with a living God death never wins so you want to be in God's will you got to die you want to follow a living Lord You have to die. You have to follow him in the way of crucifixion and resurrection. This is the hope. This is the gospel. So often not clearly heard maybe in our nation and our churches. But it's the truth. Is God living or is he not? When's the last time he surprised you? When's the last time he disappointed you? Aren't you glad we're in it together? I would not want to walk this journey by myself. Thank God I don't have to. I was so naive at 16 when somebody told me, accept Jesus and it's going to be amazing. I had no idea the journey I was about to start walking down. I had no idea that before the foundation of the world, Jesus has heard to put a cross in my path. And I didn't realize how heavy it would be. I didn't realize how disappointing it would be, how challenging it would be at times. But I do know this, that when I get to the end, I get him. As Rita Springer said, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.